Welcome to Co-op Energy Talk. I'm Rachel Johnson, the CEO here at Cherryland Electric Cooperative. And for today's podcast, we're talking about electric reliability. It's something we spend a lot of time thinking about here at Cherryland. And there's no one who spends more time thinking about it than my guest today, our Chief Operating Officer, Frank Sipker. Thanks for joining me for the podcast today, Frank. Thanks, Rachel. Happy to be here. Well, I am sure our listeners will be happy to have you as a guest. Uh, I think it's important before we kind of dive into this topic to start by saying when we're talking about reliability in this podcast, we're talking about the reliability of our distribution system. You uh, will also hear me talk regularly about what I call big G grid reliability, and that's more tied to our ability to generate and transmit electricity over long distances. Uh, the grid system, the big G grid system, has its own reliability challenges. But today, we want to talk about the system we control here at Cherryland, which is 3,400 miles of poles, lines, and system technology that we maintain in order to keep the lights on for our 38,500 members. So, Frank, why don't we um, start by talking through how Cherryland did for electric reliability in 2023? Uh, we hit a really big milestone. So, why don't you tell our listeners about that and what it means for them from a practical perspective? Sure. We've been recording outage data in our outage management system. We call it OMS for about the last 15 years, maybe a little bit longer than that. And this allows us to track and report on our performance. And the trend has been really good. We've been trending down over the course of this 15 years because of all the investments and all of the energy that we put into the work that we do to keep our system reliable. This year, for the first time in our recorded history, we met an outage goal of 99.99% availability. So that means that the system is on 99.99% of the time for the average member. And we, we calculate that in a lot of different ways. And, you know, internally, we look at outage off or out of time off due to outages. But from a positive perspective, we like to look at it from how often is it available? Because it's usually available 99.99% of the time. In order to meet that goal, our average outage time for how long the member is out has to be less than 52.8 minutes a year. And this year we came in at 42.8 minutes. So we're well underneath that goal. Um, certainly weather is a contributing factor. The majority of our system is outside and is influenced by weather. But the maintenance that we do, the reliability improvements we make, the technological improvements we make in our system all help drive that down. We look at a five-year average as well. It allows us to kind of filter out the irregularities that happen with the weather from year to year. And that five-year trend is also trending down nicely. So, Frank, I, I do want to talk at some point about the things we've done to get to that number. But before we do, can you just explain for those, for you know, I mean, you and I, we talk about this all the time. So when we hear that, we call it four nines, or we hear that 42 um, Sadie number, we know what that means. But can you just give a little more detail about how it's actually calculated? Yeah. So Sadie is the System Average Interruption Duration Index. IEEE, the International Association of Electrical and Electronics Engineers, defines this. It allows us to this ability to benchmark between other utilities of different sizes. You know, simply put, if we had 100 members without power for 120 minutes, that's 12,000 outage minutes, right? We do this in minutes, 12,000 outage minutes. If we divide that 12,000 outage minutes by the number of customers we serve on our system, 38,500 or so, that would be 0.3 SADI minutes. So three tenths of a minute in SADI. And if we have a bigger outage, let's say really extreme scenario, we have half of our system out. So half of our 39,000 members are without power for say a 60 minute outage. 
that would come out to 2.3 million outage minutes. But when we divide that by our 38,500 members, we're back down to a 30 Sadie minutes. And when we compare now ourselves to, to say, another utility, one of the, say, the investor-owned utilities that may serve 3 million meters in the state of Michigan, we can now take those same outages and run the same equation on them and get Sadie minutes that are now comparable. So if they have a 3 million member system and they have a 100 person outage for 120 minutes, that's still 12,000 outage minutes. But when you divide it by 3 million meters, now it's 0.004 Sadie minutes. So Mm -hmm. the average customer had a very short outage because there were so many customers and only a few actually had an outage. But if you take that same 50% out of power outage, so 1.5 million people without power, obviously a very big storm, you take that 160 minutes over 1.5 million customers, now you're at 180 million outage minutes. So 180 million outage minutes compared to 2.3 million outage minutes doesn't really mean anything to anybody. But when you divide that by their 3 million customers, now 30 SATI minutes. So that indice allows us to say, if they're out for 50% of their members are out for one hour and our 50% of our members are out for one hour, we both have a 30 SATI minute event. So it's apples to apples, compare big utility to small utility, smaller to smaller, and just gives us that ability to benchmark ourselves and see where we're at comparing to everybody else. When so we so look since at, we're benchmarking, Frank, tell us, can you can you give us context? How do others do on this kind of, without calling, I know, I know we're not going to call anybody out, but like in general, what do the statewide averages look like in Michigan compared to Cherryland's performance? Yeah, so in general, the statewide average, and one, one more bit of context. When we talk 80 minutes, we're typically talking about standard forced interruptions, outages related to day-to-day events, whether it's a squirrel on the line, a tree on the line, a carpool accident, you know, the normal day-to-day stuff. Major storms that take out a significant portion of our system at one point in time are generally excluded from these indices. That's IEEE standard. There's no way to benchmark from year to year and from utility to utility when you factor in these major storm events. So again, including major storms, state average for Sadie is about 180 minutes a year. And we were 42.8 last year. So significantly different. We do things different and we get different results. Well, that's the key takeaway I hope that our listeners get is that we're, we really are delivering best in state electric reliability right here in the Grand Traverse region to our members. And that's not just us saying that, even though we think we're awesome, that is actually us comparing our benchmark data to other. Um, utilities across the state. And obviously really excited to get that uh, first time, at least in our documented history, that what we call the four nines or the 99.99% system availability. So let's talk about kind of how behind. We're, we're delivering this best-in-class reliability. How are we getting that done? What are, the, what are the things we are doing to prevent the outages that we can control? So a lot of it's the, everything we do, we do the co-op way, right? We're, we're always thinking about the member at the end of the line. They're our first and our only priority. Um, we're not we're not trying to please shareholder profits and things of that nature. Certainly affordability is absolutely in our mind, right? Safety, reliability, and affordability are our three key mission statements that we are always focused on. So we take that to heart in everything we do, whether it's tree trimming. You know, we have a six-year tree trimming cycle on Cherryland system. So every six years, we trim 100% of our right-of-ways. So each year we're trimming one sixth of those right aways. Last year we trimmed, based on our model there, we trimmed over 500 miles of distribution lines. So we're reclearing them to a 30 foot wide right away, trimming essentially from ground to sky, 30 foot wide path, 15 feet either side of the, the pole center line. 
it's not always fully possible to get to the sky, right? We have 70 foot bucket trucks on our tree trimming crews. Michigan trees oftentimes are growing taller than that. But we're trying to create that envelope around the conductors that prevent momentary contacts from, from branches uh, leaning into the line, uh, or if they're loaded with snow or ice from drooping down into the lines. We're trimming that vegetation from underneath the lines to allow us to access those poles. So when we do have to do maintenance or we do have to respond to an outage, those poles and those wires are accessible to us. And they're also safer by creating these clearance envelopes. We have less likelihood of trees contacting the lines and creating an energized tree. We have less likelihood of children climbing trees and being able to reach energized conductors. Not a big thing today. I know when I was a kid, we used to climb trees and fall out of trees all the time. There's a lot of things we did when we were kids they don't let kids do anymore. <clears throat> I know. But the rules are, are 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 based around, you know, all of the above, right? And the third one that I talked about, clearance underneath the lines, the conductors, in order for them to trip offline and, and become safe again, if they were ever to fall down, they need to contact something that's grounded, such as the ground. So if we have a line that falls down and sits on a bunch of brush underneath a, underneath a line, it's not necessarily going to have the ability to trip out as fast as we would like it to and to become a, a de-energized conductor. So if it gets to the ground, the probability of it tripping off fast and promptly is much better. So we do try to keep that undergrowth vegetation uh, to a minimum to allow those conductors to reach the ground if they are ever broken down or knocked down by something else. So that's our tree trimming program. We spend a lot of money on it. I think we're right around $2 million dollars annually in our tree trimming budget right now. The majority of that goes to that cycle trimming work where we're trimming a sixth of our system every year. Uh, we also do within that, we have a danger tree program where we're going, looking at every one of those spans that we trim that year for clearance. And we look outside the right of way. So outside of that 30 foot right of way, we look for dead, dying, weak and leaning danger trees that are going to become a problem and fall into our right of way and take our lines down. And we, we try to manage that as well. So we're, we're trimming those or removing, typically removing or cutting the tops out of those trees that are going to pose a threat to our primary overhead electric system. We talked a little bit about the cost of these programs. And I, I just want to make it very clear because I think that this is, I think this happens more than it should. Tree trimming is always the easy thing to cut. <laughs> no pun intended. So when, whenever a utility is, is wanting to shore up their bottom line in a year, the easiest thing to do is to say, well, let's just trim less trees this year. And I'm really proud of the fact that at Cherryland, we've not fallen into that trap because at the end of the day, this is one of the big things we do that has a really, really significant and long-term impact on reliability. Because if you, you can get away with not trimming your trees for a year or two, but eventually that bill comes due in the form of a lot more outages for your, the people you serve. And so we're, I'm really, I think it's awesome that we have such an aggressive tree trimming cycle getting around the system in six years. But also I think we should be very proud of the money that we spend on tree trimming because we know that that is a part of what feeds into these best in class reliability numbers. So anyway, I interrupted you. Keep going with all the things we're doing to, yeah, to get to those numbers. And that, that cycle time makes a big difference too. You know, we were over 10 years when I started here 20 years ago on our cycle time. We've almost cut that in half. So we're there twice as frequently as we were previously. And, you know, the trees grow back, right? And the dead danger week, danger trees, you know, they every year there's another tree somewhere that dies or there's multiple trees or that become diseased or weak or damaged in a storm, pushed over, they're leaning over the line. So we're trying to catch those more frequently. We're going to be looking 
going forward at doing kind of a mid-cycle danger tree program too, where we'll go back at three years and look for those particular ones. We already started some preliminary pilot work with that this year and went back and inspected some circuits we trimmed three years ago and are doing some budgeting and forecasting for what we think that'll cost us and and come up with a good plan for how we can get that done. We did in the last, I don't know, maybe five years, three years, did hire a full-time right-of-way specialist that's now constantly looking at our system, attending to member-driven service tree trimming requests, and and also bird-dogging, so to speak, the contract tree trimmers that we have and going and reviewing all of the circuits before they trim them and identifying areas of concern or areas of potentially we need to have more work done or we need to be more cautious. And then also following up and inspecting every single mile that gets trimmed to make sure that it's trimmed to our standards, make sure we've got the clearance we need and make sure that those danger trees have been identified and removed. So that's been a huge benefit as well to make this program more successful and and, uh, more reliable overall. Can you talk about some of the um, more like the technology system investments we've made? And I'm thinking here of things like the automation and isolation investments we've made to help us avoid outages where we can and make them impact less people when we can. Yeah, so there's two components to that. One is sectionalizing, and that's where we look at our system and we try to break it up into smaller pieces with sectionalizing devices, whether fuses or circuit breakers, reclosers, some kind of a device that will trip to isolate a fault. The more of those we put and the less space we put between them, the smaller the outage is when it happens. So if we can break a circuit that has a thousand people in it half, and say, put a recloser in the middle of that. So 500 people are off the substation and 500 people are off that midline recloser. If there's an outage at the end of the line, only the last 500 people have to be without power to clear that fault as opposed to all 1,000 of those customers. So every time we can reduce the number of customers involved, we mm-hmm. reduce that the number of outage minutes that are created by those events, thereby reducing our SADI number. So that's a technology thing we've, we can certainly do. We fuse all of our radial taps. We install more midline reclosers, more tap reclosers. The reclosers give us an added benefit that they can trip on a momentary fault and reclose back into the line to re-energize it. So if a squirrel contacts a line, they can trip, clear the arc, allow the squirrel to fall clear, and re-energize automatically. It's just programmed into the devices in the field. There's no communications required. It just works that way. They create what we call blinks uh, when there is a momentary outage but they reduce the number of permanent outages that we have, which is, means more time on. The more the power is on, the better. Um, so we use quite a few of those. The and I think, thing- Frank, it's, it's such an interesting point because I think a lot of people, they get blinks and they will say, oh, you're doing a bad job. Well, the blinks are saving you from an actual outage often, right? Because Correct. the blink is a part of a system control device that's designed to decrease the frequency of outages. And then the, the kind of sexualization you piece piece you described allows us to decrease the number of people impacted by any individual event. Yes, exactly. If the reclosers didn't create those blinks, what we would have would be a permanent outage. The power would just Mm -hmm. go out the first time the Mm -hmm. power blinked, and then we would have to go out, investigate, find the problem, isolate it, repair it, remove it, whatever the case may be, and then re-energize that line. So the duration is is significant, right? It's people mm-hmm. in the field to go from a permanent outage to a restored outage. But from a from a momentary outage, reclosers can automatically restore that and, and off we go. Occasionally those outages that the reclosers detect are permanent, right? So then mm-hmm. you get a sure. couple of blinks, two, three, four blinks that then become an outage. Mm-hmm. So that when you get multiple blinks and then the power goes out, the recloser was doing its job. Just that the fault that was there was not a temporary one. It's something we had to go physically remove and isolate from the system in order to re-energize it. Just blinks and comes back on, 
that was an outage saved, right? That was it means outage. the squirrel has uh, self-removed. Be <laughs> yes. the other component, right? So the yeah. automo- automation and and SCADA supervisory control and data acquisition. The systems we put in place allow us to communicate with these devices we installed, reclosers, electronic reclosers, and operate them from the office. So now if we have that scenario where we had a thousand people on a feeder and suppose now that the outage event occurred in the first half of that feeder. So now the 500 people at the end of the line, they go out with the 500 people at the beginning of the line because there's no way to get power to the end of the line if you don't have the beginning of the line. So now outage at, say, pole 10, recloser at pole 20 everybody's out, right? Right from pole zero. So with with this remote SCADA controlled equipment, we can now look at that from the office and we can determine, we know that the fault occurred on their substation recloser. We know that the midline recloser has not detected a fault. So we've identified now where the fault is. It's between the substation and the first recloser. So now we can go into a remote isolation process where the substation recloser is open, pole zero, the midline recloser is closed. We can open the midline recloser. Now we've isolated the fault between zero and, mid- and midline recloser. And now we'll have a switch that is remote controlled from the office that we can re-energize the second half of the line from what we would call a loop-fed circuit, right? So the, the circuit that comes out of Garfield ties into a circuit that comes out of Timberlee. If we lose part of the Garfield circuit, we'll break it in half, leave the first half out, and then we will backfeed and re-energize the second half of that Garfield circuit from Timberlee. By doing this all remotely, we can do that within a matter of minutes uh, from the office as opposed to dispatching field crews and drive time and and then you know all those all the extra time that goes with that. So if we had manual switches before, now with automation, we can drive the duration of that outage down faster and faster and faster. And that leads into what we're working on now is automating that process. And that would be a what we call a flissure scheme, fault isolation, detection, and restoration. So we're gonna we're gonna find it, we're gonna detect it, isolate it, and then restore it, all with a computer system running in the background. So it can be done within a minute instead of within five, 10, 15, 20 minutes. Of having a human review it from the office. Yeah. Correct. So we're function testing a lot of that. We have that software in our possession and in operation. Uh, we're learning from it. We're letting it monitor our system. It's you know it's reporting solutions to us at this point in time that we can manually implement or tell it to physically automatically implement. Uh, in the future, we'll be able to cut that loose and let it do its own thing, and again continue to drive those outage times down. So it's just amazing. Let me just say this is all very technical. So I know for a lot of our listeners, it's a little hard. But the kind of the the bottom line here, the takeaway is we've invested in these technologies. And just to be clear, none of them are cheap, right? We've invested in these technologies on their behalf that allow what would have historically been a thousand people out for, let's say, four hours. I'm making that number up. A thousand people out for four hours. We can, within a minute, limit that to, let's say, 500 people out with some of those technologies you described. So for 500 people, they went from a four hour outage to a five minute outage. The other 500, we know right where it's at now because of the data we're getting back at the office. So we can send a crew out there and get things restored as fast as possible. So we've also given ourselves more access to data to allow us to be more efficient, even when it requires a manual repair. And then because we're never happy, even though we're the best, we're now looking at ways to use essentially like artificial intelligence and machine learning to, to have the system itself make smart decisions on those things that right now are requiring a human in the office to do. It's super fascinating stuff, Frank. 
Let's talk a little bit. So I mentioned that none of this stuff comes cheap. Let's talk just a little bit about high level. What what are we investing in our system on a yearly basis? We talked about $2 million for tree trimming. What are some of the other kind of high level investments we're making every single year to manage reliability? The other one of the other year to year investments we make is maintenance. You know, we spend somewhere between four and five hundred thousand dollars a year on just doing maintenance on our plant, trying to avoid future. Oh, you mean million? You said hundred thousand, but you meant million, didn't you? No, on, just on expense maintenance, it's about a half. Oh, million. just on, yep. okay, yep. okay. So yep. we're going we're going pole to pole, right? With a line okay. crew, they're they're installing okay. animal guards, wildlife protection. They're updating fuses if they need to be. You know, they're inspecting all the electrical connections, placing old lightning arresters, things of that nature, just your basic preventative maintenance, right? And that's an expense. We do that year in, year out. We're on about a 15-year cycle to get through our system. We've been doing that pretty consistently for the last five to 10 years. So we're probably halfway through our first trip around the system on that. And that really helps all of these equipment-related outages, helps reduce blinks, helps reduce animal-related outages. Our two biggest cause of outages are trees and wind and animals, right? Small animals. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're kind of tackling both of those animals, trees and animals, <laughs> right, with, with maintenance yep. programs, right? We're trimming trees and we're maintaining the poles and installing wildlife protection, little clip-on plastic guards around the bushings, coated jumper wires that try to just provide more space between grounded things, you know, things that are ground potential and things that are at energized potential. Our system operates at 7,200 volts to ground, 7,200 volts. Your house is 120 volts, so, you know, 60 times higher voltage on those overhead lines. And if we if we allow a path to be created by an animal that can touch ground and energize stuff at the same time, it creates a fault. It arcs, it creates an arc, and and we have fault current, and then it's going to trip some kind of a protective device. So we're trying to limit that ability for small animals to be able to make contact with ground and energize things by increasing the distance and by increasing the coatings on those to make them more immune to that. The other big investment is what Rachel was keen into here is is our system improvement program. So we call it our construction work plan. We're trying to rebuild about 20 miles of our distribution system every year, replace old poles, replace old wires. Oftentimes we go overhead to underground, whatever it takes to make that piece of line serve the capacity requirements that we have, you know, how much load we need to energy we need to provide to our customers, how much energy they need, but also do it in the most reliable way possible for those conditions. So rebuilding that line, we, you know, we have about 3,400 miles of line in our system. We're rebuilding about 20 miles a year. That's a 170 year cycle, right? So it's not (laughs) the only thing we do. We tackle the worst of the worst with those programs. We also do pole inspection programs. We test and inspect our poles, 10-year cycle on that. We go to every pole every 10 years, and then we replace poles that are reaching the end of their usable life kind of on a one-by-one basis. And that allows us to take an old overhead line and extend its life from you know 50 or 70 years to 100 to 150 or more years by individually replacing poles as they become bad. We have thousands of poles in our system that are still 1938 original plant poles that are still passing pole inspections. So it's it's not an automatic, you have to rebuild the line every 50, 60, 70, 80, whatever, 100 years. There's, there's, no, there's no automatic timeline. We base that on condition, age is a factor, right? When we have a line with a whole bunch of really old poles that we haven't done any replacements on, you know, they're probably all going to go bad at the same time, and it's probably going to be in a storm. So we, we do prioritize those as rebuild projects. So we spend around $3 million a year just on the rebuilding projects, uh, which is a significant investment. That's, there's, there, there, are, there are financial costs of that, right? Our rates 
support that. Uh, the rates mm-hmm. that our members pay are supporting that. $3 million a year is, is not a small investment. We've seen costs of materials and labor and everything that goes into this escalate astronomically in the last three years. Material costs are up 40% over the last three years on average when we look at all the materials we use. Labor costs are up, obviously, as the labor markets have grown everywhere, and the demand for those materials has made them harder and harder to get. So we're bringing in more inventory in order to be able to provide materials we need for the projects we're trying to complete in a timely manner. So we're paying more carrying costs, more interest on inventory. And on the materials themselves, there's interest costs that are up too once we capitalize those projects and finance them for a 30-year depreciation period. So we're paying interest on that. So costs are continuing to go up. We're continuing to look at creative ways to try to keep the cost, the rate pressure on our members as reasonable as possible. But as I said, doing 20 miles a year is still a 170-year cycle. We can't really slow that can't down. Can't slow it down lot, too much. Yeah. Uh, because yep. stuff's going to fall apart before we get to it. And that's just not yeah. acceptable. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I th- and you and I've talked a lot about this, but if you go back over the last 10 to 15 years, we know that we've not had quite as much tension between rates and our ability to, to invest in our system because interest rates were really low, inflation was relatively stable and low, and that's no longer the environment we're in. And yet at the same time, as we wrestle with this tension between reliability and affordability, we know from our members, they don't want to see sacrifices in reliability. So the key is for us to sharpen our pencils and figure out what can we cut a little that won't have a big impact on reliability and then figure out how to manage the rate pressures of everything else. Because at the end of the day, we have to keep the lights on. That's our job. So it's not a simple tension like it used to be. So kind of to maybe take us out of what we're doing, what we have been doing and wrap up the podcast as a really technical person, someone who's really keen on technological innovation, as you look into the future, what are the kind of future technologies that you're watching that you think might even further modernize our system or improve our reliability uh, value for our members? I think artificial intelligence is one of the most obvious ones. We piloted an artificial intelligence vegetation management program where it's actually taking satellite images of the trees, doing a near-red spectral imagery analysis of that, and trying to determine where we have trees that are dying or becoming diseased so we can try and be proactive and Maybe someday we can get away from having a trim on a cycle basis where we're at the same place every six years. Maybe we can get to where this year we're going to the worst places on our system and trimming those. And next year we're going to go to the worst places on our system and trim those and not have to go span to span to pull to pull to pull because it is expensive and time consuming. It does get us good results, right? We've been proving that over the last 20 years. We know that it works, but it's also costly. Tree trimming costs have increased astronomically in the last few years too. So That's something we've been looking at. We've not found the particular technology that meets our requirements for not missing trees. You know, the -hmm. the one that we reviewed, if there was a a single tree in a span that was likely to be a problem, it was sort of filtering that out as noise because it had to filter noise out somehow and it was missing some stuff. Continue to look at those. But that's just one example. We'll see that on automated intelligence that's looking at all of the fault data that we're getting back. All these electronic reclosures provide us back very granular fault detail, 128 cycles per second. They're bringing back all the voltage and current, all these things that we can analyze in the future. I think we'll be able to tell in the office when a fault occurs, we'll probably be able to tell what caused the fault. Was it an animal? Was it a tree branch? Was it a conductor slapping another conductor? Was it you know, a conductor falling on the ground? And be able to have that information just based upon what the system is seeing before we dispatch the crew. So we'll, we'll kind of know, mm-hmm. are we are dealing with a down conductor? Or are we dealing with an animal outage? 
Are we dealing with a lightning arrest, lightning strike or a possibly a blown lightning arrestor? The more of that information we can get and process, there's a lot of data there. We can't manually do that. There's just no way. There's too much data. There's too many data points, too many different possible causes. That's something that's got to be run on a, on a really high power, high energy automated intelligence system that can do that. We're dabbling with automated intelligence on our drone inspection program right now. So it's actually going out. We're flying NMC, great partner for us. The local college here has an aviation program with drone technology. They're actually flying our poles with photography. So they're taking, say, 10 pictures of every pole, bringing that back in. And we're, we've got a company that's training an AI engine based upon the data they get off these pictures to find problems so that people don't have to sit there and look at the pictures and look for the problems. Or like right now, I don't have to send a lineman with two other guys, so three linemen and a bucket truck and a pickup truck to every pole, set the truck mm -hmm. up, put in all the safety gear, go up the pole and look at everything in person. That's very time consuming, very expensive. It works really well. We get great results. But if we can go through and identify all the poles that there's nothing wrong with that we don't have to go to and then go to the poles where we know there's something wrong and fix everything there, that's a big time saver, big labor yeah. saver. And we can get more done faster. We can help manage rates. So those are the things we're looking at. I mean, there's a million other possible data analytics uh, tools out there that I think are going to be coming down the pipe that'll make this all faster and more efficient. But the mm -hmm. key here for us is faster and more efficient doesn't work if we can't get the quality results. It's going to be really fascinating to watch it play. I mean, we're not the only industry being the where change is being driven by more data and the ability to process that data into actionable insights that you can use to improve your business, right? But we also happen to be one of the lucky businesses where we do have a lot of data. <laughs> and so it's it's kind of a fun time to be in our industry and watch watch some of those things change. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time Frank, to come and talk to our members about how good of a job we're doing with reliability, but just as importantly about how we're getting that. Because the more they understand how we're getting it, the more they can understand where our costs are, where our money goes. But also when we get, you know, they see, when they see people trimming trees in their neighborhood, I think it's helpful to understand that's part of the way we help to prevent outages. So appreciate you going through all that with us. Do you have any last thoughts for our members on this or are we have we covered everything? We've covered a lot. Uh, we've covered a lot. You know, we're never going to get to no outages, right? So, yeah. so be patient. Keep that in mind. Everyone's doing everything they can to get there as fast as they can and to get the work mm -hmm. done as safely and efficiently as they can when there are outages. Field crews are fantastic. They're incredible. Bunch of bunch of folks we've got out there that do great work. And uh, I know everybody loves to see them when they're arriving to, to save the day in an outage. If they're not there right away, it's because they're helping somebody else, right? Yeah. And uh, we do have a fairly lean team here. Uh, our line department is one of the, the smallest in the in the world on a per meter basis, right? And our whole operations are, um, and they do fantastic work. They are very efficient. They get their stuff done, but it, there's only so many to go around. So when we do have the bigger outages. Uh, we got a lot of ground to cover with just a few guys. Appreciate the hard work they all put into it. Yeah, and thank you for pointing that out too, because I think that's another thing that may not be immediately obvious. We run a really lean ship. And as you pointed out, we have not just line workers per meter, but employees per meter. We're one of the leanest in the country. So here we are delivering best in class reliability with fewer employees. There's a lot of reasons behind that, but part of it is really tied to how hard our employees work and how dedicated they are. And, and then a lot of these other technology investments we put in to help them be as efficient as they can be. So there's so many parts of this reliability narrative that I think we can be proud of. And I, I know I'm, I'm really proud of what we've done as an organization and everybody who's worked hard to get us there. And if you heard nothing else in this podcast today, I hope you remember this. We got to four nines, which is a momentous 
occasion in the co-op's history. And we're really, really proud of that. And we're going to keep working to, to maintain that level of reliability for our members because we know how important it is. Thank you all for, for listening in as we talk through this. It gives Frank and I a ton of joy to talk about nerdy energy stuff. So we appreciate your willingness to, to lend an ear. If you have any questions after the podcast, don't hesitate to reach out to us. You can do so by leaving a comment on the blog, or you're also welcome to email me. My email address is rjohnson at cherrylandelectric.coop. And I hope you will join me next time for Co-op Energy Talk. 